0: I've titled my message today, All for Christ, and we're in the series, Joy in the Journey. And today I'm looking at Philippians 3, verse 1 to 11. Now I want to put a picture on the screen. Who knows this guy? Who knows his name? Who knows what he does? At least that one you can, (laughs) he runs. Thank you, Kathy. Now this guy is called Ferguson Churyot Rotich. If you watch the recently ended Tokyo Olympics, you may have seen his race. He runs the 800 meter race. Christine, please put the next uh, slide. That's Rotich on the right and he was my hero of the Olympics. I think he's the guy I walked away with. Of all the gold medals that uh, were won, Rotich is the one who captured my, my heart and my imagination. So what happened, Rotich was running in the 800 meters and he won the silver medal. When the race ended, uh, let me give you a, a background to the race. So the 800 meter, for those who don't know, is a two lap race and one lap is 400 meters, just to be very clear. And so you do one lap, and it's a fairly fast race because um, you, you're more or less sprinting through the two laps. So when they came to the last lap and the last bend, the last bend on the lap is from the 200-meter mark. So when you go around like this, uh, Ferguson was somewhere, I think it was a race of about uh, maybe 15 people. At the last bend, as you're approaching the 100-meter mark, he was probably about seventh in the race. And so as they round the track and they get to about this, uh, let me say, 80-meter mark, you suddenly see him starting to take off, uh, and as the race is coming to the end, to the finish line, he somehow passes through everybody and ends up taking the silver medal. And I think if that race had gone on for another 20 meters, he'd actually have won the gold. So when the race was over, uh, as journalists are wont to do when somebody is dying from exhaustion, uh, they go and ask him, Ferguson, how did you do it? How did you come from, at the 200 meter mark, you are around 8th or 7th. And then as you're getting to the 70th, we suddenly see you taking off, and you win the silver. We're watching the race with my children, uh, Wanje and Wadayo, and we were completely mesmerized when he gave this answer. He said, when we got to about the 70-meter mark, I suddenly remembered I was supposed to be on the podium. (laughs) That's what he said. I suddenly remembered I was supposed to be on the podium, and I took off, and I won the silver. And Wanji Wadaya and myself were saying, you know, even if I remembered how much I want that I'm supposed to be on the podium, there is no silver medal you can win in the Olympics. And that's why I want to start my message this morning. Do you remember that you're supposed to be on the podium? Do you know you're supposed to be on the podium? Actually, do you even know there's a podium? <laughs> Thankfully for us, unlike Ferguson, Rotich who had to summon all the energy in him. Now that's Rotich on the left, there, incidentally, on the podium, taking the silver medal. Unfortunately, the light is a bit too bright, but he got the silver and Korir um, took the gold. Unlike Rotich, who had to summon everything in him to get to the podium, for we who are believers in Christ, we do not get to that podium in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, who we read in Luke eleven thirteen, God is waiting to give those who ask. I want us to turn to Philippians 3, 1 to 11, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. It titles this passage, All for Christ, and that's um, my sermon title as well. Philippians 3, 1 to 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I am also circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But all things were gain to me, this I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In chapter 1, we find that Paul is speaking from a difficult position as he is in prison chains. He tells them that despite the things that have happened to him, the gospel has been furthered. And in verses 15 to 18, he says, where it has even been preached with wrong motives, the gospel is still advancing. He then talks about persecution for Christ. When we come to chapter two, Paul is urging them to be humble and consider it, and to do all things without complaining and disputing. That's verse 14. And so as he starts this portion of his letter in chapter 3, he exclaims that finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And I think the finally here that Paul is saying is don't focus on me and what I'm going through. That's beside the point. The crux of what I want you to know and to focus on is rejoicing in the Lord. And that's my agenda for you. And then Paul says that he will not get tired of writing the same things to them because it is safe for them. Paul is talking about the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Jesus, of the good news, is a life-saving gospel. There is no other life that has ever walked the face of this earth that would compare to the life of Jesus. There's no other death that can compare with the death of Jesus at Calvary. There's no other comeback from death experience that can match the resurrection of Jesus. Even if you've been declared and certified in a hospital that you've died, and then you came back in a miraculous way, you can't dare say that you're equal to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The series in this book is Joy in the Journey, and Paul is telling his audience to rejoice in the Lord because the gospel of the Lord is a gospel of victory, it's a gospel of triumph, and it's a gospel of coronation. He's speaking from prison and is urging them in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord because he's clear in his mind that ultimately it is well with him. In Colossians 1:13 and 14, and I'm going to read a couple of verses. Colossians 1:13 and 14, Paul declares that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love, in whom we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, we have victory over sin. We've triumphed over Satan. In 2 Timothy one, eight to eleven, Paul tells this to Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel, according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearance of our Savior Jesus Christ, now this for me stands out, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. The gospel that Paul is preaching has abolished death, and has brought life and immortality. Through this gospel, Paul is saying we have the victory over death. And then in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, and Pastor Tisi referred to this last week, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now... They do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we for an imperishable crown. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's James 1, 12. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. 1 Peter 5, 4. Revelation 2.10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. And finally, Revelation 3.11, behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast for what you have that no one may take your crown. And that's the coronation awaiting us on that great day. When Jesus, the righteous judge, will crown us with his righteousness. I remember when, um, who was, somebody was crowned. Uh, When was it? I was watching a coronation ceremony anyway. And when you're being, uh, is the word, coronated, uh, you walk up a podium, and then somebody comes and puts the crown on your head. It's never done down, you're always somewhere up there when you're being crowned. Or even when a president is being sworn in, the crowd is never the one that's up and the president is down. He's always somewhere where you all can see. Now think about the podium at the end of the day. That's the podium Paul is telling you and I. He will not tire of telling them about. Because in the interim, the journey to get there may be tough. But the coronation is sure to happen. It will happen. It may be difficult. For Uh the second picture, you saw his eyes firmly glued on the, on the podium. I think they were glued to where he was trying to get to with all the pain he was feeling. But if you remember where you're supposed to be, Rotich remembered where you were supposed to be. You will then find the joy to persevere, to persevere through, and you won't give up. The first sermon series, uh, the first chapter of Philippians, when Pastor Craig introduced this uh, sermon series, he differentiated happiness and joy by telling us that joy is an internal reality of knowing God will never leave you nor forsake you. Joy is an internal reality of knowing God will never leave you nor forsake you. So the journey to the podium that Paul is talking about is one that requires the joy of the Lord rather than the happiness of man. Because in this journey, there will be many, many things that will take away your happiness. There will be many trials and tribulations. And so what I want to emphasize is that the joy of the Lord, rather than your happiness, will lead you to the podium of Christ. The joy of the Lord, rather than your happiness, will lead you to the podium of Christ. Happiness is momentary and very circumstantial. It depends a lot on what's going on at the moment. And Craig, you're almost preaching my sermon. I was like, please don't go any any further than you're saying If you're at a party gorging yourself at the buffet, you're very happy you're eating. But if later that evening you get food poisoning from the same food that you're enjoying, you will not be happy at all. Very circumstantial. The joy of the Lord is not dependent on what is going on because circumstances do not change who he is and our assurance in him. My mom-in-law... Went to be with the Lord in February this year. She had terminal illness, and in the last two months, the doctors effectively told her they had nothing else uh, they could do. Whenever my wife called her, uh, she was abroad. Uh, She'd pick up the phone and say, Faith, I am just waiting. And she had this very nice smile on her face. I am just waiting. And she'd say, I'm just waiting to finally meet Jesus. What was interesting was that many mornings she'd wake up uh, and and Craig was talking about what do you do? What's your first thought when you wake up? My mom-in-law would wake up in the morning and would be completely annoyed that she was still alive. (laughs) She'd wake up and say, Jesus didn't take me. I've been waiting for him. And that is how she ended her life. And for me there can be a better example of joy in the Lord. And she used to tell us, don't worry about me. I've lived a good life. I have no regrets. I have served Jesus faithfully all my life. All I want now is to meet him. What I'm going through doesn't matter. That is the joy of the Lord. And apart from Paul not getting tired of repeating himself, I think it's critical for us, his audience, for you and I to pay attention to the gospel and what it says to us. In Hebrews 2:1 to 4. We read, Therefore, we must give more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So this morning, if you're a regular attender to church, maybe online, Uh, You know, there are guys who are very faithful to online church, but not to in-person church. If you're a regular attender, but you've never given your life to Christ, Paul is telling you that he will not get tired of telling you that the gospel is the only way to eternal life. But the responsibility of accepting him as your Lord and Savior is yours only. If you don't take it up, and heed the call for salvation, as the writer of Hebrews says, how do you hope to escape when there is no other escape route? Could you let this morning be like what that day was for Ferguson Rutich? Would it be the morning you remember that you're supposed to be on the podium on that great day and agree to accept Jesus as your personal saviour? For those who have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, Paul now proceeds to address you in the following verses. In verse two and three, he wants his audience to beware of dogs, of evil workers and of the mutilation. These are strong words, but Paul has a reason. At that point, there are those who are preaching that to be a Christian had to follow the Jewish custom of circumcision. So despite the gospel being availed to and being accepted by the Gentiles, There was now a hurdle that was being placed before them, suggesting that Jesus could only be your Savior and Lord if that physical act was accomplished. And Paul rose against this distortion of the gospel because he said it could hinder some accepting the gospel or even make some rescind their acceptance, especially the Gentiles. And so he says he will not get tired of saying the same things over and over again. Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians in 62 A.D. The letter to the Galatians was written in 54 A.D., eight years earlier. And even back then, Paul was still talking about the same things he was. In Galatians 2, to 21, Paul says this, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh, shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the Lord died to the Lord that I, may, I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Paul is saying, how can you live by grace, yet seek to compel others to subscribe to something we ourselves do not? If your salvation was because you heeded his unreserved call to come to him, can you now demand that for someone else to be saved, they must do an act that you yourself was not demanded of by the Lord Jesus? And then make that act a barrier to salvation. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Those are the dogs, and evildoers that Paul is talking about and asking the believers in Philippi to be aware of. Those who become barriers to the free gift of God and likewise in the present day we must be aware of any teachings that seek to mutilate the gospel or add to or subtract from it. So from our present passage and from the one in Galatians, Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. By his Holy Spirit, he sustains us. Reliance on anything else is contrary to the gift of God to us. In other words, anything that adds to or subtracts from the gospel of Christ is mutilating it, and we must shun it in its totality. We must all be careful of the teachings that come our way, Whether it's from a pulpit such as this one, from online sermons, or wherever it will come from, we must be careful to make sure that we are not led astray by teachings that seek to embellish the message of Jesus to the extent that we start questioning whether we are saved or not. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And that's a message wrapped up in two verses. No more, no less. Period. The custom of circumcision emanated from God's instructions to Abraham in Genesis 17, 11. And the cutting of the flesh through circumcision was an outward sign of a covenant that was made with God. And yet despite this and despite the Mosaic law, time would show that taking care of the outside while the inside remained the same made no contribution at all to getting into eternity. And therefore Jesus came in the form of man identified with us as a high priest who's endured everything we have yet was without sin, Hebrews 4.15, and ultimately died on the cross to atone for our sins. This is what will take care of the inside of man. So when Paul states in Philippians 3.3 that we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, he's in effect saying that we have cut off on the inside what has been a barrier to our truly being who God has always wanted us to be. That the inside, our will, fallen man has been cut off and the Lord has taken his rightful place as Lord and King of our lives. In Colossians 2:6 to 11, Paul says this, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him, you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then in Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul makes what I think was a very startling statement uh, in those days. He says, for he is not a Jew... Who is one outwardly? Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So the heart and what's going on in the heart is the crux of the matter. As we sit here, and I might say looking trim and proper. What's going on inside your heart? Are you a Jew? Not a Jew from Israel, but a Jew from the Holy Spirit. What would we find if we examined your heart? I read this statement from an article titled The Significance of Second Vision by a Chinese preacher called Witness Lee. He lived between 1905 and 1997. To put off our flesh. What is the significance of circumcision? Firstly, it is to put off our flesh. Many Christians today talk about the overcoming of sin, but that is not the basic dealing. The basic dealing is to put off the flesh. The flesh does include the sinful flesh. However, in the Bible, the flesh includes much more than this, for it also includes our natural strength, ability, power, and talents. Moreover, the flesh includes our natural man, the ego, the I. Hence, to put off the flesh means to put off the very I, to terminate the self. He then says this regarding himself. Many years ago, I was seeking for the overcoming of sin, but I was only partially successful until I saw that my need was not to overcome sin, but to terminate myself. I began to see that once I was terminated, everything would be all right. The real dealing with sin is not to overcome it, but to get rid of ourselves, to circumcise ourselves. Once we've been circumcised, and have ourselves terminated, we shall have no problem with sin. So the problem with sin is you, not the sin. Now I try to share Christ every single opportunity I have in my day to day life. I'm not one of those guys who'll stand in the street with a loudspeaker (laughs) and preach a sermon, but I'll preach very quietly in my office. And if you shared Christ with someone who doesn't know Christ, one of the things they'll tell you is, I can't get saved because I can't stop this or that. And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I can't get saved. This is what I keep doing. I can't stop it. They know they don't have the mental capacity to walk away from the particular vice they are involved in. And my answer to them is always this. You don't have to stop your vice to get saved. In fact, you can't stop your vice to get saved because that's where you're doing the vice, because you can't stop it. But I'll assure them that when they get saved, when Christ becomes their Lord and they worship Him in the Spirit, and they have confidence, they lose their confidence in the flesh, then they will find their victory. And for us, I think one way to terminate ourselves is to advise ourselves, advise yourself that you cannot save yourself. And once you advise yourself that you can't save yourself, then you'll be able to turn to the one who can, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. As long as you place your confidence in the flesh, meaning you've not terminated yourself by the inward circumcision, sin will continue to perplex you. It doesn't matter that you've confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Paul is urging us to circumcise the flesh, which is simply recognizing that natural man, your ego, your will, your abilities, your talents, your power, anything other than Christ will always be the antithesis of the Lordship of Christ in your life. You can't place your confidence in the flesh, and you can't choose Christ and the flesh It's either all. Choose Christ or choose the flesh. When you choose Christ, you're confident that you will gain eternal life. When you choose flesh, you're confident that you're going to die. Can I say that again? When you choose Christ, you're confident that you will gain eternal life. When you choose the flesh, you're confident that you're going to die. And for me personally, I derive great comfort in knowing that the flesh will let me down. The flesh actually works to let me down so that I will not achieve the crown that is set before me. And so, I have to do away with it. Galatians 5.24 says this, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions, and, desires. and then in 2 Corinthians 7, one, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And then Paul goes on now to give what I says is his C.V, to show them how the flesh does not count. It doesn't work. In Philippians four to 6. To prove how fleshy he had been by them, Paul says this. Circumcised the eighth day. He could boast of his relations with the church and the covenant because he was circumcised on the very day that God had appointed, the eighth day. Of the stock of Israel, he was a native Israelite. Of the tribe of Benjamin, the temple actually stood in the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin is the one that sided with Judah when all the others revolted. A Hebrew of Hebrews, his father and mother were both Israelites, so he was real blue blood. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Paul had learned under the eminent teacher Gamaliel, and in Acts 23.6, we even learned that Paul's father himself was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He was such a devoted Pharisee that he persecuted anyone who was an enemy of what he believed in. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, he totally adhered to the Mosaic law. Paul had realized that as long as his focus remained on earthly qualifications to determine success or failure, he, as witnessly puts it, had placed himself on the throne. It was about him his ego, the I, and that would never take him to the podium of eternity. So he was telling his audience that perhaps few of them could match his resume, and perhaps some even admired him for it and wanted to be like him, but he had left it all behind for Christ, which should speak something to them. And I actually thought to digress a bit. I think Paul's resume is a very nice evangelistic tool for many of us, it could go something like this. You think you're at the top? Let me tell you about myself. Circumcised the eighth day for the Anglicans confirmed in church on my 12th birthday. (laughs) Of the stock of Israel, top 100 of the most influential people. Of the tribe of Benjamin, of the tribe of CEOs. A Hebrew of Hebrews, a man's man for guys who play rugby. (laughs) Concerning the law, a Pharisee. I didn't just get a PhD, but a magna cum laude PhD. (laughs) Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning zeal, engaging in four organizations fighting climate change. (laughs) Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Concerning obeying the law, I have never even jumped a traffic light. I'm that (laughs) pious. Or, it could be you think you're a sinner. Let me tell you about myself. Circumcised the eighth day, ran away from school on the eighth day of kindergarten. (laughs) Of the stock of Israel, of the stock of great liars. Of the tribe of Benjamin, of the tribe of thieves. A Hebrew of Hebrew, a thug of thugs. Concerning the law of Pharisee, Concerning the law, a jailbird. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning zeal, clubbing four times a week. Concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Concerning the sinfulness, which is in man, fully to blame. You know, sharing Christ is sometimes just opening your heart to someone who can identify with you because you've been where he or she. Has been. And then you let them see how Jesus has transformed you when you invited him into your life. The evidence of a transformed life, of your transformed life, could do more for a person's faith than a thousand sermons. And I think I've shared with you guys that one of the things that led me to Christ was the holiday camp I attended. I had gone there with ulterior motives. Uh, but when I went there and I found Christians who looked happy and joyful, I wondered, why do these guys look so happy? Why are they looking like they have you together? And when I tried to pursue what it was about and found it was Jesus, I couldn't resist him, and I gave my life that same day. Paul then ends this passage that I'm looking at by saying that he considered his fleshly achievements as rubbish for the sake of Christ, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus is Lord. And not just that, but to attain the righteousness which is from God through faith, and then in verse 10 and 11, that he may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, so that he may attain the resurrection from the dead. What a proclamation. The great podium that Paul has fixed his eyes on is the attaining of the resurrection from the dead. His circumcision, his being an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, his Hebraic pedigree, his position as Pharisee and total obedience to the law could never give him the resurrection from the dead. It was all rubbish. The KJV doesn't mean it's words. It actually says it's all done. And he had to lose them for the sake of Christ. This is what I want to end my message with this morning. The flesh seeks to convince you that Christ is not enough. Lose all flesh and gain all of Christ. And the beauty of the gospel of Christ is this. It's a one size fits all. You don't need to have a PhD to qualify. You don't need to be of a certain tribe or to go through any customary practices to qualify. You don't need to know the law or attain a certain percentage mark in theology or to know the books of the Bible to qualify. You don't need to be pure or holy or righteous or blameless or clean or right to qualify. You don't need charisma to qualify. You you don't need to be a melancholic, a sanguine like Pastor Craig, a choleric like me, or a phlegmatic to qualify. You don't need to be outgoing or introverted to qualify. One size fits all. When you internalize the fact that none of what the flesh sets for us as milestones or achievables matters, then you'll be able to gain all of Christ. And it's as simple as that. I believe that KVC, as a collective, will only exhibit the power of the resurrection of Christ dependent on how much rubbish or dung we are willing to lose as individuals and as a corporate body. I tried to formulate a math formula to explain what I've said. And it went something like this. The power of the resurrection of Christ in us is inversely proportional to the amount of rubbish we consider our flesh to be. The power of the resurrection of Christ in us is inversely proportional to the amount of dung we consider our flesh to be. The stinkier our flesh is to us, the more we realize its futility and the more we enthrone Jesus Christ in our lives and allow the power of his resurrection to be manifested in our body. And as a body, we bring together different backgrounds, we come from different denominations, and we have many persuasions. But our Lord Jesus Christ did not preach a denomination or a background or a theology or a persuasion. He preached himself and wants us to focus, focus on him and his gospel. And Paul is telling us that what Jesus requires, requires of you, requires of us, requires of me, is to have the righteousness which is from God by our faith in Jesus. To know Jesus and the power of his resurrection by accepting that he died on the cross, that we become partakers with him of his sufferings and conforming to his death because the world will fight us and then fix our eyes on the unchangeable truth that we shall attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me ask the worship team to come up, please. Now talking about the flesh, let me say that overcoming the flesh is not a one-time battle. You know, it's not giving it a knockout blow in the fashion of Mike Tyson, and then you move on the flesh keeps coming back. And I thought of an addiction. And again, Craig, you're about to mess my, my salmon. Some of us, you have to have that coffee when you wake up first thing in the morning. And so when you're trying to beat that addiction, or any other addiction, you'll put into place a strategy to overcome uh, your addiction. So maybe you wake up in the morning, instead of taking coffee, forgive me, David, you take water, you replace it with something else. If you're daft enough, you can decide you will not be sleeping, so you don't have to wake up to drink coffee. (laughs) Wrong strategy. But anyway, when you start, every day will require you to fight the urge to reach out for your percolator. You may even have dreamt the whole night that you are drinking coffee. But when you wake up in the morning, you will not reach out for that coffee. And eventually, you'll overcome this addiction. But every time you walk past a coffee house and a whiff of coffee hits your nose, deep things in you beg you, let's just do this just for old times' sake. And you still have to beat that urge. And that's the flesh. Because we are still on this side of heaven, the flesh will continually reshape itself and try to seduce you. You know, it's like this demonic COVID virus. You think you've been jabbed. I hate jabs, by the way. And then they start talking about three, four booster shots. I'm like, first, I don't even like one. And you keep talking about more and more. Why? Because this thing keeps mutating. That's the flesh. You overcome it in this way, it comes back in another way. But you have to keep fighting. You must remain vigilant to the words of Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, that your adversary walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and so you must resist him, steadfast in the faith. So lose all flesh, gain all of Christ, and then from Philippians three eleven attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen.